0: We are digging into a little-known work of Immanuel Swedenborg's called Survey that is actually key to his whole theology. According to Swedenborg, part of God's second coming is the establishment of what Swedenborg calls a new church. But what does he mean by church? Swedenborg uses that word variously to describe an earthly organization, an entire spiritual era, or simply the activity of love and faith within a person. In March of 1769, Swedenborg wrote to his friend, Dr. Gabriel Bayer, that this new church will come little by little as the doctrine of justification and imputation is uprooted, which will likely be done by this treatise. So how did Survey manage that? And if those doctrines are being uprooted, what is Swedenborg arguing should be put in their place? Once we get clear on that, Maybe then we can glean insight into what the new church is that this book is preparing for. Let's dig in. By the time Swedenborg published Survey, which is short for Survey of Teachings of the New Church meant by the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelation, he had claimed authorship of all his previously published theological works. And in his work, Marriage Love, which was published the year before survey, he wrote that, quote, within two years, you will see the complete doctrine of the new church foretold by the Lord in Revelation 21 and 22, which he's referencing his future publication, True Christianity. But shortly after, After publishing Marriage Love, he decides that those two years are too long, and so he drafts this treatise, Survey. And we actually know from historical records that a couple of friends of his, Johann Christian Kuno, who was a German poet, and then Count Anders Johann von Hupken, a Swedish statesman, both independently urged. Swedenborg against publishing survey for the hostility that they were sure would come to Swedenborg if he went ahead and challenged the current doctrinal framework of Christianity, which he was doing in, with the publication of survey.
1: And considering that Swedenborg uh, routinely destroyed both letters that he sent to others and letters that others sent to him, It's amazing that we have two independent records of this. There might have been quite a bit more for all we know.
0: Yes, and so Kuno, it's in his memoirs that he wrote that he writes about what he thought of this work survey that Swedenborg had published. So here's what he wrote.
1: Swedenborg had told me of this intended publication, but notwithstanding my entreaties, he would not show me a single line of the projected work. I opposed its publication with all my might. And as this proved unavailing, and as I did not like to see the good and honest man run any danger, I thought my remonstrance might prove more effective if I should expostulate with him at table in the presence of a large company. In these words, As your faithful friend, I must advise you not to come out with your new doctrine, or at least to allow the two years which you have announced to elapse, or you will expose yourself to the danger of being banished from the city. He could not be moved, however, and before the month of January came to a close, the compendium of his new doctrine was printed, bound, and dispatched to the preachers and priests of all sects, and at the same time scattered throughout all the towns and universities of Holland.
0: Wow. And so in the case of Count von Hupken, he wrote Swedenborg a letter in November of 1769, which was the year that survey was published, expressing concern that Swedenborg was putting himself in danger, similar to how Kuno was saying that, by publishing survey. And so Swedenborg, like you were saying, Jonathan, he must have destroyed the letter that he got from the count, but Count von Hupken must have kept Swedenborg's reply. And so it's from that that we can actually infer what the count had first written to Swedenborg.
1: And it's worth adding that Count von Hupken was a top level member of the government. He outranked Swedenborg, even though Swedenborg was a nobleman, he outranked him by quite a bit. He was a very highly placed person. He was 24 years younger than Swedenborg. He rose up through the ranks very quickly and became prime minister, the equivalent of prime minister of Sweden, at the age of 40. He was a great thinker, a very clear writer, apparently, but some criticized him for being weak uh, in opposing Sweden's enemies during the Seven Years' War when he was prime minister during that difficult period. And he was one of the first people Swedenborg told about his spiritual experiences he admired Swedenborg's contributions to the sessions of Parliament, and he was one of a handful of distinguished guests at the royal table when the king invited Swedenborg to dine with the royal family so they could hear about his spiritual experiences.
0: And so in Swedenborg's reply to the count, he defends himself and gives a reason why he thinks he's actually going to be okay and that there's not as much to worry about as the count is suggesting.
1: High, well-born Herr Count. Not until the 14th instant did I have the honor of receiving Your Excellency's very friendly letter of November 5th. It pleases me that the last two books have arrived. That the summaria expositio doctrinae novae ecclesiae will meet with censure, as stated by Your Excellency from foresight, is certain, yet only in the beginning, when one is in darkness from preconceived principles confirmed. But since the rational has light within itself, even in theological matters, the truth will gradually come to be seen and acknowledged. The reason why preference is given to the Catholics is set forth in Numbers 109 and following. But in addition is also this reason, that what is regarded is a universal church in the whole of Christendom. When this preliminary treatise was finished, Then in the world of spirits, the whole heaven from east to west and from south to north was seen by me covered with beautiful purple roses to the admiration of all who were present there, which was the testification of the new heaven's consent and pleasure.
0: Yes, so you can sort of hear, you have to pick up the pieces of like, what did the count write to Swedenborg that then Swedenborg is writing back, replying about, so he's got that Censure in there, and he's got this reason of why is preference given to the Catholics. To which Swedenborg says there that what's regarded is a universal church in the whole of Christendom, and that is something to we'll, we'll explore later in this episode.
1: And that word censure, you know, you might think it's just a slap on the wrist, but it could mean legal administrative action against him. Public rebuke, including even banishment from the city, as Kuno says. And Kuno was in Amsterdam. Banishment from Amsterdam would be really bad for Swedenborg. It was one of the few places on earth where he could publish his books.
2: But what he's trying to get across, I feel like, in this is to say, hey, I'm I'm so glad that you're worried and you're right on. But listen, I run in a lot of circles (laughs) and heaven is into this. So, I'm gonna do it.
0: Yes. So he 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 shares that amazing thing that he witnesses in heaven when survey or as he gives the Latin there, the sumario expositio, uh, was published. Heaven goes crazy, you know, explodes with these purple flowers, and so right, just like you're saying, it seems like he's not he's not deterred because uh, you know even though. He's got these friends of his, Kuno and the Count, who are concerned for his sake. He's confident in the importance of it and, you know, that it's worth him publishing survey anyway. And so in this, in survey, one of the first things Swedenborg does, you know, when addressing the errors of justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's merit— which was quoted in a letter to Bayer at the beginning of this episode. He quotes from the Council of Trent to describe the doctrine of the Roman Catholics, and then from the formula of Concord to describe the doctrine of the Protestants. And what he makes the case to show that they actually, by quoting from these two resources, that they actually believe the same thing regarding these two doctrines that he's saying need to be uprooted in the church. And he goes so far as to say, actually, there's four core doctrines that they agree on, which are, first, that there's a trinity of persons in the Godhead, that original sin came from Adam, that Christ's merit is assigned to us, and that we are justified by faith alone.
1: It's amazing to think of him being... David to the Goliath of the whole Protestant world, but he's actually going to throw the Catholics in there as well. Uh, Even just saying that might be enough to get that attack that he was worried about, to say that Protestants and Catholics believe the same thing when not that long earlier in, in sort of collective memory was 30 years war between Catholics and Protestants. So this was an amazing claim that these two are on the same page. Both sides would probably be incensed to hear that.
0: Yes, but Swedenborg is willing to take the risk because he feels that it's so important for these doctrines to be uprooted. And so in his letter to Bayer, he wrote that survey somehow would work to uproot them And so if something is being uprooted, what needs to be planted in its place? And let's find that out right now. So what you get when you uproot these doctrines, according to Swedenborg is what he calls a truly effective faith. He puts it in those words in in this work survey. And so then what does he mean by what makes for an effective faith? In number 52, paragraph number 52, he writes, actual repentance. So repentance, not as like an afterthought after we've already been justified by faith, but as the active spiritual work that we must do in order to open up to heaven and develop genuine faith. And so in paragraph number 92, Swedenborg writes, "...there are two things that build heaven in us, truths that lead to faith and good actions that come from goodwill. Truths that lead to faith bring us the presence of the Lord and show us the way to heaven." Good actions that come from goodwill give us a partnership with the Lord and bring us into heaven. Faith in its essence is a desire for what is true, and goodwill in its essence is a desire for what is good. So repentance is this necessary work that allows us to develop real faith and goodwill.
2: So repentance is important. And what's he say about it in survey?
0: So he writes in paragraph 52, that the divine design is for us to, quote, examine ourselves, see our evils, and resist them, and to do this seemingly on our own, although in fact, the Lord is helping, unquote.
1: And he clarifies that it's not faith alone that saves us, because really repentance is the first step. In section 69, he actually quotes... His earlier work, Revelation Unveiled, on these points, that we possess the power to reform and regenerate ourselves and that all who practice repentance are reformed and regenerated. And he goes so far as to say that this responding through love and faith and forging a partnership with God is the one and only thing God wants us to do for him.
0: Wow. And so the two main doctrines... That he's uprooting are really connected so you have the first which is this idea that we're justified by faith alone and then the second one the imputation of Christ's merit it's like it's that through faith that we receive the imputation of Christ's merit and Swedenborg is saying though that we're not justified by faith alone we need to practice repentance and why it's because of how the assignment of spiritual credit or blame, as he puts it, really works. You know, can we really take Christ's credit or merit and have that become, you know, personalized to us? And so Swedenborg writes about this in number one oh nine. He says, because this concept of assigning is the root, the start, and the foundation of faith and of all the work faith does for our salvation. And because it is therefore the sanctuary and shrine at the center of all Christian church buildings today, it is important to add as an appendix to this work, an examination of this notion of assigning presented point by point as follows. And so then here are the points he then sets out to explain. One, after we die, we are all assigned blame for the evil or else credit for the goodness to which we have devoted ourselves. Number two. It is impossible to incorporate one person's goodness into another person. And number three, given that this is impossible, it is an imaginary faith to believe that Christ's justice or merit is assigned or attributed to us. So he picks up this thread again in number 112. He says, No such reassignment of benefit is possible in regard to people's spiritual lives. But he's not saying that we don't have any connection with God. He's saying that you just have to, it works in a different way. So he goes on, spiritual life has to be planted in us. If it's not planted in us as a result of our living by the Lord's commandments, we stay involved in the evil we were born with. Before spiritual life is planted in us, nothing good can affect us.
2: It seems like, of course, you couldn't have somebody else's justice or merit attributed to you. There are certain things that are, are non-transferable. Think if I was going to say, okay, I'm going to give you my reputation. Yeah. Right. Now, now you have my reputation. It it, it it, by definition, is about things that I did. Or if it's Or if I'm working in a group and and we all do something good and the professor comes over and says, you did a good job. And someone else who wasn't in our group was like, can I get credit for that job too? It it just (laughs) has to be a a farce, you know? (laughs) Exactly. So so you can't, the idea that somehow God did something really good and now we're gonna say that we did it, it, doesn't seem to hold water. I like this idea of something being planted in us. That is something that you can look around and see analogous processes to in the world. So how, how do we get that thing planted in us?
1: Well, there may be an answer in survey section 59. Swedenborg writes, abstain from what is evil because it is sinful. Do what is good and believe in the Lord. That's an interesting sequence to put it in, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like abstaining from evil first, then doing what is good, and then finally the faith part, believe in the Lord. <laughs> and he adds, if you do these things, you will experience a process of being justified that will actually save you.
0: Yes. And I think that's part of what's key is that Swedenborg isn't, you know, throwing out the Bible or something. You know, like there's there's a lot of... Uh, you know, talk of how we are saved by Christ and all this stuff. So it's just a matter of like, it's not some alchemical process that just because we say we have faith, suddenly Christ's merit is, you know, deposited in us or something. Swedenborg is saying you have to go through these steps and it starts with that abstaining from what is evil and then doing what is good. And that's how you develop faith. And, what I love about Swedenborg is that he's not, he's also not saying just, this is actually the way it is, so you should believe me. He's hes saying, here's how it works. Here how I, here's how I've witnessed how this whole process works through his introspection and his experiences in the spiritual world. And then he just gives it, shares it to say, think about it, you know, does this make sense to you? And... And so even in survey, he gets into the why when he's talking about this assignment of spiritual blame and and how does it, if that's not how it works, then how does it really work? And this this is just this amazing uh, passage in number 113. So I'm gonna read it and you guys see what you think. If people abstain from one evil on the grounds that that evil is sinful, They abstain from all evils, provided that both their will and their intellect are engaged in the process. That is, they abstain from that evil purposefully and deliberately. The effect is even greater if they intentionally abstain from more than one evil. As soon as we abstain purposefully or deliberately from any sinful evil, the Lord maintains in us an intention to abstain from the rest. If we do something evil out of ignorance or because we are overwhelmed by a physical craving, we are not blamed for it because we had not planned on doing it and we do not support what we did. We develop this intention as the result of examining ourselves once or twice a year and recovering from an evil we find in ourselves. If we never examine ourselves, we do not develop this intention.
1: It seems as though he's telling people the bar is lower than you think. In other words, hmm. I think part of that faith alone rhetoric had been that it's impossible. We're born from our mother's womb, just covered in sin. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it, you know, that that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's saying, oh, no, well, if you just do a little bit, you get more credit than you think for doing that. But you do have to take that that first step to to get it going. Uh and even if you stumble, wasn't that amazing that yeah. that uh you know, okay, you got caught off guard or something and you did something stupid, uh, well, if if you didn't intend it, he's so big on what your will and your intellect are engaged in uh that if you just sort of got fooled into it or or when you were tired or you know, in some other condition of relative irrationality or something, Uh, If you don't support it, if it wasn't intention or a plan that you had, uh, even that can be kind of shucked off. It seems like it's a pretty organic way
2: and non-fundamentalist way to look at your moral performance. And Mm -hmm. that, that seems to be a thread in Swedenborg where it's all very reasonable yeah okay it's different you mess this up but we know that's not who you're trying to become that that counts that that even in even in the realm of theology and merit and sin it's still got this oh it's all right you're trying your best vibe to it and it's a little bit like i guess the policy just needs to be in place like if there's a factory that has safety protocols and unfortunately they weren't followed at this one time and somebody got hurt, that's not as bad as if they had no safety protocols in the first place, then you can really get sued and that sort of thing. I think right. it's saying to us, hey, get your, get your intellect engaged, understand why this is a good thing to do, get your will engaged, you know, saying you want to do it. Resist one is good, resist two is better, and do this a couple of times a year and then, then you're putting in enough effort that, that that's good, you're in, and we can work with that.
0: Yes, and I just love those words purposefully and deliberately that that's how we develop our intention and and that we have to get the ball rolling on that intention development through that examining ourselves, uh, you know, and I love the language of recovering from an evil we find ourselves in, and that intention. It it, just—it feels like that's what triggers that process of us choosing it, and then God can flow in, you know, because we've—we're—as we start to say, yes, this is what I want to do, that's that will that then uh, God infuses with this desire that builds for love and—love and truth, like he was saying in earlier numbers that we quoted. So that's the piece, is— Justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's merit kind of starts putting on these blinders about where things really are important to pay attention to, which is this process of repentance that that leads us to really getting free from evil. So
2: it shuts you down if you start talking about things like I was giving the examples before about how transferring merit from one person to another is nonsensical. Once you hear that, but you hear that's just how it is and you can't make sense of it, it just shuts a certain part of your brain off and you think, okay, we're just talking about religious stuff. Okay, that's just the way that religious stuff is. But when Swedenborg goes out of his way, as you mentioned, to explain to you, this is how it works and why, and even saying that the process of repentance depends on you understanding what's going on. The the purposefully and deliberately is mm-hmm. you got you can't be sleepwalking you you got to understand what you're doing and why that wakes back up the part of you that you use to engage with everything else in life where where th- you work to make things make sense and you act on that and you do things that you understand and want to do and you can use that faculty which is a core human faculty in the pursuit of these religious things which which brings religion from being this sort of sterile two-dimensional box to, oh, this is another living part of life.
0: Yes. And so it really seems like when you read Survey that this is that point that he is trying to get across is, you guys, you got to think about repentance. (laughs) So there's a clue we get about how really key Swedenborg thought this repentance piece is, and we find this clue when we compare the table of contents that Swedenborg gives in paragraph number 16 of survey uh, with the actual table of contents of true Christianity when it gets published. So in survey, he's saying, here's what this intended work is going to cover, and he lists and we talked about that in the last uh episode where we talked about survey and but then it isn't until 1771 that he publishes true christianity that work goes through several revisions but if you just look at you do a one-to-one of survey to true christianity we see something that is sort of hidden in plain sight
1: So in chapter 1, the Lord God, the Savior, and the divine trinity within him becomes actually chapters 1 to 3 with a separate chapter for each part of the trinity, which is just unprecedented in his work.
0: Mm. And so chapter 2 in survey, which was written to be about sacred scripture, that becomes chapter 4 of true Christianity.
2: And chapter 3 on love for God, love for our neighbor, and the harmony between them, loosely becomes chapter seven which is called goodwill or loving our neighbor and good actions
1: chapter four on faith becomes chapter six
0: and chapter five on teachings about life drawn from the ten commandments becomes chapter five
1: chapter
2: six becomes chapter ten on reformation and regeneration chapter seven becomes chapter eight on free choice
0: Chapter 8 on baptism becomes chapter 12.
2: Chapter 9 on the Holy Supper becomes chapter 13.
1: Then the next three chapters in survey, chapters 10 to 12, he cuts entirely on heaven and hell, on our partnership with heaven or hell, and how our state after death depends on that partnership and on eternal life.
0: And then this is where it would become part two, but as we said in the last episode on this, there are no parts to this work, so all of what he lists as the chapters of part two becomes chapter 14, the last chapter in true Christianity, which is on the close of the age, the coming of the Lord, and the new church. This covers everything in the original plan for part two, except a chapter on the last judgment. So in true Christianity, the only chapters that were cut from the survey outline are those ones on heaven and hell, and then the one on the last judgment. And really why they're cut is a mystery.
1: You know, it could be because he already had works on those topics, but that was also true of of sacred scripture and, and, right, and yep, God yep. and so on. And uh, my colleague, George Dole also put forward that it might be an audience issue, which is that true Christianity is especially aimed at a Lutheran audience, and Lutheran orthodoxy didn't really cover life after death in the same way, and so to make it fit even better, he dials up the Trinity and dials down the life after death. Who knows? Hmm. Okay, wait. I'm not a mathematician, but...
2: I was following along when we're counting and we've got chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, 13, 14. There's a couple even numbers in a row there. So what's going on with that?
0: Yes, that's because we're missing chapters 9 and 11. So what are they in true Christianity? Chapters on repentance and the assignment of spiritual credit or blame. (laughs) So... Somehow, when he's writing survey and saying, this is what that work true Christianity is going to contain, he doesn't even mention repentance or the assignment of spiritual credit or blame. But then the rest of the work of survey treats of these discordances, as he calls them, those 25 points of discordance. And in there, he's just getting, you know, chewing over all this stuff about how you got to focus on repentance. You're missing this key thing because there is no, you know, transference of spiritual credit, because this is how it really works, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff about intention. And so that's those are the chapters he ends up adding to true Christianity. And so in the final uh, work of true Christianity, you've got chapter nine on repentance, followed by a chapter on reformation and regeneration, and then followed by chapter 11 on the assignment of spiritual credit or blame. I, I just found spending this time with survey that it really seems like it functions really well as a primer for true Christianity, for getting to grasp like a lot of all these different teachings that Swedenborg talks about in all of his theological works. And it I think it would be really helpful too, you know, if you're someone who's ever scratched your head about christian doctrines you know and if anything of what we've shared in this episode rings true to you then reading survey is just this super concise digest of like these are how these things line up and this is what you know swedenborg is saying makes a lot more sense so i just think it's it's a really uh cool work that i'm excited about the new century edition translation coming out in 2022. And so, in the beginning, we quoted this letter Swedenborg wrote to his friend, Dr. Gabriel Bayer, where he's asked, he's saying how people ask him about the new church and when it will come. And he says that it will come little by little as the doctrine of justification and imputation is uprooted, which will likely be done by this treatise. And so, when he's saying that's that the new church will come. What does that even really mean? Well, in number 68 of survey, he gives this amazingly simple definition, which I love. He writes, the marriage of faith and goodwill is the new church that is now being established by the Lord.
1: Mm, It's such an amazing definition. And that idea that he's very big on that idea of the marriage of faith and goodwill and faith, um, if you think of faith as being blue and goodwill as being red, uh, corresponds as he often talks about, then maybe this relates to that purple of those flowers in the spiritual world.
0: Right, because he wrote in that letter to Von Hupkin about how this work, survey, is with regard to a universal church in the whole of Christendom. And I love that idea that, Again, I always like to think of Swedenborg's writing in the 1700s and so he sort of has this the whole of Christendom when to me that sounds like you're missing a huge part of the world when you're calling just Christendom or something. So I but I feel like it it makes sense to me when you think about these essential pieces that he's pulled together in this work and by saying that the marriage of faith and goodwill is the new church that's now being established by God is like Uh, you know, this idea of one God, no matter what name you use to describe that divine being or the essence, the creator of all things. And then that you've you've got to have this marriage of truth and love that those two things, that's, that's your recipe for heaven on earth, right? So it's just amazing. Like what
2: kind of church is realistically going to cover the world in any kind of productive way do you do you really think of like a single church organization yeah, would spring right. up around the whole world and everybody would buy into that and that would it would have like a franchise model that would be so irresistible that every kind of person anything kind of collapses and you could even say what what is what do we even need churches for couldn't you do things through non-governmental organizations but but Right. right if the new church is the marriage of faith and goodwill that does something and that can be displayed through any religious framing i think swedenborg certainly was imagining a a christian regalvanization and revival and reclarification but Mm -hmm. just as easily that you know the new forms of thought and worship that are emerging and melding and doing everything as the you know the whole world gets to be more in communication with every other part of the world and as we discover new things about the nature of physical reality and so on and so on you could certainly see oh that that to every corner of the world it could spread that your teachings need to make it so that when I visit you, whoever you are, I feel safer around you.
0: Yes. Like you've got that, there's truth here and there's love here. And that then those two together gives you that sense of safety, no matter where you are. I just, I just love that. And so we had mentioned how Kuno and Von Hopkin were really concerned for their buddy Swedenborg saying, you're going to get censured and you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you publish this work. But there's still this question of, did it really create a stir or not? And we have newly found evidence that gives us insight into what happened after survey was published, which we're going to explore next time. Thanks so much, Jonathan and Curtis. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you. You bet.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to never miss when a new episode comes out. In addition to our adventures into the past, we're bringing you the NCE Spotlight every other week. All of the translations used in this episode are from the ongoing work of the New Century Edition. The work survey will be coming out in 2022, as well as Volumes 3 and 4 of Secrets of Heaven. If you've benefited from the work of the Swedenborg Foundation through Off the Left Eye and the New Century Edition, consider supporting us with a donation. We're a nonprofit and depend on the support of our donors. To give, go to Swedenborg.com donate. Give if you can, receive if you need. We're all in this together and we're so glad you're here.